Thank you very much to Andrea Carpenter for joining me for today's podcast. Andrea is the co-founder of womentalkrealestate.org and a writer and communications consultant in the property sector. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. I haven't met Andrea before today, actually. I have been in, we've been in constant, well, in in communication via Twitter quite a lot. And I was really intrigued when earlier this year I saw the account pop up on Twitter and saw that it was a, a company that looked to promote women speaking at various uh, property events, which being a woman who speaks at various property events intrigued me. So I got in touch with, with her and uh, and uh, have been excited to see the launch of that business. So Andrea, talk me through a bit about what it was that gave you the idea to start this business. I think at the end, it was frustration of having worked in the industry for a long time, about 22 years. And I've seen so many changes in the industry, but one thing I have seen that hasn't changed has been the representation of women. We still are, you know, very kind of represented, you know, there's a huge diversity of women among our senior leadership. So I think um, I was moderating a European conference back last September. It was a full day's program. I was moderating other than that, there were two other females on stage through what was a very kind of heavy people program, so about 25 speakers. And I just thought, oh, finally, I'm going to have to do something to change this. I'm going to have to think it through and understand how we can make a difference. Because I think I realised just how important visibility is in terms of improving women's representation in this industry. You know, we really need to be seen to be in this, all the roles that we're doing in the industry, we need to be able to offer more role models for those coming through the sector. So, And also realising that for individuals who speak on stage, I know what it's like, you all know what it's like. You come off stage, people want to engage with you, they give you business cards, they are follow up with you. So just also at an individual level for women, how important it is to kind of raise their visibility in our industry. It's really important. It's something that I talk about a lot as well when uh, people come to me and say how why is it that you're able to raise so much money with crowdfunding or uh, do these various things? And and the reason is visibility, yeah. as you say. And and part of that visibility is not just the social media engagement, but also getting up and speaking and being seen as an expert in that industry. Yeah. And, and that's, that is really important. So how did you then go about forming the company? And you have a business partner as well? Victoria, yes. So I, I travelled back from Heathrow, grabbed my, you know, dragged my suitcase around to Victoria's, who lives in the same neighbourhood as me. We've worked together and we're really good friends. And she just opened the door and she got me in full kind of, we need to do something about <laughs> this mode. And, you know, so we discussed it and, you know, over the... Next few months, we, we did some research. We looked at a sample of about um, around 80 events that had gone on in our part of the industry. And we found quite quickly that it boiled down to one number, which was 14%. 14% of speakers at industry event on, you know, on average are women. And when you look at the sort of the statistics, that's a, we, it was about 1,560 speakers and 230 women. So around 14%. And the more that we looked at more events, that figure didn't change. And then we looked at, we pulled out panel discussions because we thought they're a particularly important part of how we, you know, how we stage events in this industry and they're three or four people at a time. So it's a rich place where we could get more women's voices out. And once again, it was 14%, but about 50% of those panels did not have a single female speaker. 
and the only time they had more than two, so they had three or four, they were discussing diversity. So, you know, that was kind of, that was our starting point in terms of the research. And I guess someone could uh, count, could come back to you and say, well, what's the percentage of women in the property industry? Mm -hmm. And have you done some research on that? We've looked, there aren't re- many figures around that. We've seen it as low as 13% and as high as 20%. So we think it's somewhere around there. But if you look, go back to that 14%, we're counting women who, you know, women speakers, we're not counting individual female speakers. So if we take out, our, you know, we do have a layer of very strong women who are more visible like yourself. So if we take those out, we may be down to 11%, 12%, you know, yeah, right. just counting them once. And I suppose what we really want to put across is that, you know, we just don't want, we want to represent the industry that we want for the future. You know, it's a public arena for our industry. These are our showcases. So it's the stage industry events. And it's we throw the media into that. We think that's very important as well. So if we start kind of pushing ourselves and representing ourselves at a 50% level within those public arenas, that will be just such a positive momentum for actually kind of helping and contributing to kind of keeping women interested in staying in the industry. Yeah, even if we can get it up to around a 20% level, I, wouldn't that be I'd amazing? I'd be delighted. Yeah, yes. which is yeah. more representative yeah. perhaps of mm. the of the senior women in the property industry. Mm. So uh, and and so how is it that you you set up and and what is it that you now do to help promote women? Yeah. So at the heart of Women Talk Real Estate is a database where we have gathered um, profiles on women who are interested and very keen to speak at industry events. It's a wide range of amazing female experts that we have. So we have the database of, of those women and that is then opened up to event organisers and journalists. They have access to that. So when they are looking for a female speaker, they can easily go in and search through certain criteria, whether it's company type, expertise, region, sector, and they can find a range of women and it will have a small snapshot of what they can speak on and then they can um, click on the search results and find a sort of a more, something like a LinkedIn profile or profile almost. It'll have a summary, a biography, pictures that you can download for brochures, um, videos, anything that kind of is helpful to event organisers to make decisions about who they ask. And then they can communicate to the speaker through the website. So there's a little box, they can write a message. Um, we're copied in on that initial email just to see what type of activity is going on from yeah, our website. Yeah. yeah, so and then when um, when the speaker receives it and they're invited, when they respond, that conversation becomes private. So really yeah. we're introducing them because I think event organisers um, do a great job and but they are sort of in a way on their own sometimes. They're relying on committee members, they're relying on people around them for ideas. So getting fresh ideas is sometimes difficult. So giving them a universe of women that they can, you know, look for female experts to improve representation, but also just to get a different range of voices, we think is a very positive way of just bridging that gap. That's right. That's right. Because often these event organisers might not even realise what talent there is out there. So I, I think that there is possibly a bit of, oh, my goodness, we've got a panel and it's all men. What can we do? And <laughs> I did not realise what talent there was out there, really. Yeah. You know, I know, you know, I know I've, you know, my background means I've got a very good network in this industry. So I know a lot of the senior women. But, you know, some of the profiles coming in, we just kind of, you know, keep nudging Victoria and I keep nudging each other going, look at this woman. She's amazing. Look how, you know, wow. what, you know, look what amazing projects she's working on and, you know, the sort of the influence she has in her own area. But, you know, to, to most people, she's kind of, 
you know, there's less visibility of these, some of these women. So it's also about opening up a range of women with different expertise to across the sector to stop us being quite siloed about architects only listening to architects and developers only listening to developers. So I think that's another positive outcome. Yeah, it is. It's, it, it is interesting. And I was approached recently by a uh, a, a medical organisation asking me to speak. And I said, are you sure <laughs> you've got the right person? They said, yeah. well, actually, we want to present our, our medics with our investment ideas. And so we and one of those is property. So it, you're right. It's not just about people in, in that sector who are interested. There's yeah. quite a, a broad range. And so by having a database like yours, mm. it allows them to be able to tap in and, and find maybe 50 percent of their of their speaker panel. Yeah. Yeah, and we're very open to other sectors also. You know, we would love, you know, we have a good range of senior women in the in the database. We'd love to them, see them talk at broader business conferences. Also, again, just presenting themselves as role models and contributing to the debate at a broader business level. Yeah, that's right. And tell me about your background. I, I know you've had some overseas experience, uh, yeah. sort of the, which is, I'm sure shaped you and who you are today. So just take me through your background. Yeah, I, I've, I've been very lucky that I've had sort of several different lives in property, really. I started as a journalist. Um, I worked for Property Week for a couple of years. And then I and then actually probably the thing that shaped me most was I became editor of Europroperty, right, which was yeah. a monthly investment and development magazine. And I hit the I hit that industry just as it was transforming. It was just, you know, I, I don't think I even realised that, you know, I took the job in October and the euro was arriving in, you know, at the end of the yeah. year. I hadn't even kind of factored that into my thinking in terms of taking the job. So I, you know, so for seven years, I was editor of that magazine and I oversaw an amazing transformation of what was happening in particularly the European investment and development side of, of our industry. Um, you know, it was incredibly influential for me to be, you know, uh, working with so many different cultures and so many different kind of countries, you know, getting to understand different markets across Europe. So that was, I think, you know, maybe a huge European. And, you know, I've always wanted to kind of work in that pan-European space, whatever I've done since then. And so I worked, I say I was the editor for um, seven years and that took me up until about 2005. And then I, I, transfer, I transferred, I, I had to make a decision. Did I want to remain a journalist and move into a different sector for something different? But I felt like I'd got a body of knowledge then that was, you know, my value in that sense. Or did I want to um, stay in the industry and do something different? So I moved to work for ULI, the Urban Land Institute, one of the industry associations. That's where I met Victoria, who I work with on Women Talk Real Estate. Again, hugely interesting, opened up my eyes more to the regeneration side of property. And again, it was, you know, it was a new range of network and, and you know, expanding my network. Again, it was across Europe. I was working on some of the research projects they were doing. Uh, but quite quickly after that, two years later, I moved to Amsterdam and worked for InRev which is the Association of Non-Listed Property Funds. And again, that was an emergent part of the market at the time. So they were just, again, hitting the sort of the wave in terms of how they were shaping, helping shape the industry through their research and creating professional industry standards. And I worked there for three years. And that, that again, was amazing. Living on the continent, you know, when you're, you know, when you're, when you're British and you live on an island, suddenly moving to the continent is a whole different mindset. You're and, a proper. <laughs> yeah, and I, love, I loved how that kind of opened up my mind to yeah. that as well. And I get so cross with people who say UK and Europe. You know, I cannot let mm. it go if someone says that to me. So, yeah. Um, and then from there, they had a sister organisation setting up in Asia. So I spent a really fun year in Hong Kong. 
And um, I just decided Hong Kong wasn't sort of the long-term place for me, even though it's an amazing city. So I came back and um, sort of intended to work for myself, but got kind of um, Peter Hendricks, who um, who founded InRev, was working at CBRE Global Investors at the time. They just had a big merger between ING Real Estate Investment Managers and CBRE Investors. So I went to work for that new entity in sort of a marketing communications role. And I suppose that surprises me. That's the first time I actually worked for you know a company you know a commercial company in the industry everything else had been as an observer Mm. so it was actually very interesting to finally realize how little I knew about how things worked in a company so again that was great to add to my knowledge but I left there to um, work I worked with Victoria on Women Talk Real Estate and also I am quietly and very slowly working on a book about the industry which has taken me about three and a half years so far but it's it's almost done so hopefully by the end of the year I in between making a living I will have actually finished it finished the book so yeah. you will then be an author as well and what not is necessarily the... published author but yes author <laughs> <laughs> yeah. what is that book about if... well that book is about that transformation that I've seen if you look at the European industry from about the mid-1990s at that point American capital arrived in into Europe, um, buying non-performing loans, distressed assets in Paris. And from that point onward, I think they were very influential in, you know, the Opportunity Funds invested a huge amount in the industry in terms of actual money and volume. But they also were very influential in opening up the industry's eyes to a more financial approach. And again, it was at the time of the euro and that broke open the borders for European investment. So you saw the German open-ended funds, you know, travel across Europe and globally, investing huge amounts again. And you saw the formation of the European fund management industry, which was sort of, you know, that in-rev world. And, you know, everything kind of hurtled towards the crash. So that's obviously a big part of it. But then I think also if you look at, I want to look at where the industry is today, because I think if you're a young professional or a student, which who I'm, the book is aimed at, you coming into an industry that you think is... um you know, that you think has always been like this. You think think it's always been global, modern, financial, but 25 years ago, it was a very domestic, much quieter industry. So I think that's an incredible story to tell. But it must be very difficult to draw a line and say, okay, this is where I'm finishing the book because this is open-ended with Brexit and with all the the, the changes that are going on within the the property investment space, the the, the sterling mm. uh, dropping like a stone at the moment. I think it reached new lows against the euro yesterday. It did, even. yeah. Eight um, years, yeah. That's it's. Um, where where will you draw a line and say, right, this is this is now the end of this this book and yes, start the, the next one. The fact that the world keeps turning as I'm writing this is sort of my daily nightmare. Every time I sort of slam my laptop shut when I see another newsletter from another organisation, another two billion deal, and I think, oh god, what? How is the industry changing? I think I just sort of draw the line around, I suppose, this time really, you know, are we on a, are we on a sort of a, a journey now where prop tech will be much more, much more kind of in, you know, that disruption that's bringing to the industry. I'm actually quite interested. It sounds extremely dull, but I think the response to the crash for a lot of the industry was the regulation that's been put in place. Yes. And I think that's very much changed us as an industry in some places, squashed out some of the entrepreneurial side that we had. So I think that's also an interesting aspect to see how the industry will respond to that as well. But I think it might be something we have to, you know, that our future is as part of a much more kind of grown up financial industry. If you think about the crash, it was sort of the first time all those 
all those international models I'd been spoken about had been tested. You know, I know it was an unprecedented crash. So for the industry, it's unfortunate that that was the first time that they had a test in terms of how all these business models were going to, you know, respond. So I suppose now looking at where have the non-listed funds come to, you know, the German open-ended funds, there's only a few of those less. What happened to the opportunity fund model? You know, how are those, how has that all settled out? And actually that has taken 10 years. You know, there's still fund managers dealing with assets slightly underwater still from the crisis. Mm. Mm. Yeah, they just seem to trade at such discounts to book value. And perhaps that's some of the more the listed, mm. the REIT-type models. But whenever I've looked at them, it, there just seems to be such discounts in there or... And does that happen with the the unlisted trusts, the funds as well, or uh, they don't tend to trade so much? Yeah, they would. I think the the non-listed funds try to build in a trading aspect. They try to they wanted to be able to trade shares in those funds, and the only time people really wanted to trade was just post crisis when people were trying to get out of them, and nobody really wanted to get in with into them. So it's never really been properly tested. Again, it's something, you know, after the crisis. Funds were just completely off the off everyone's radar. No one, no one wanted anything to do with them, and investors went back to being much more focused on have, doing their own investing and building up their own teams. Certainly, the larger ones, certainly, and or they, you know, separate accounts were the flavor of the month, where and um, where a fund manager would take on an investor's capital, but have much more control of what they're doing. So it's how the pendulum has swung the other way, and it's swung quite a long way the other way. So I suppose. The end is really how that is starting to settle out. But you're right, Brexit, global, you know, global changes, polit- geopolitical issues are much more bedded, embedded into what the industry has to think. You know, they're much more controlled by interest rates than they used to be because they're much more involved in debt and kind of using that as part of their performance. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to be really fascinated to read how you end this because I just I, I cannot see how, how you can. Uh, so I guess your your commercial background and uh, the the people that you've met along the way across Pan Europe have have given you so many contacts that you can then tap into for these various uh, industry events who mm. need female speakers. And so, have you had uh, what successes have you had recently? Uh, what women have you been able to put in various? Uh, events and and what's something that really excites you about the day-to-day running of this business? Yeah, so I think Women Talk Real Estate has been Victoria and I pulling in every single favour that we've ever, you know, <laughs> ever felt we've been owed just that's to get this business. off the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. which has been nice because it, it means going back to people and finding out, you know, finding out what people are doing um, and what we've done is just open doors. You know, I think people have been very excited about the practical nature of the idea, the fact that we want to put women out there into the mainstream we're really supportive of women's networks but you know we want there to be something alongside having women's networks which is make sure those women also kind of put themselves in front of the entire industry as well so some of the successes so um we have 240 women in, registered in the database which i think is itself Brilliant. is a success yeah. yeah you know when you do this you uh, Victoria and I were always like, well, do you think women will actually want to do it? That was always the big test. Do they want to put themselves forward? But, you know, we had a, we wanted to have 100 within a year. And I think we got 240 in about three months. Wow. That's so amazing. I think we should pass 300 by the end of the year. And I think what some of the exciting things are that we've obviously tapped into our own network to get those contacts. So we find that, you know, we have a lot of investment fund managers and uh, developers and things like that from that well but we've been found by architects planners 
people doing community engagement for regeneration schemes. So, you know, like you, we found social media really useful to get the word out yeah. and just meet and find people that you may have not been in your universe. So is the, the range is very exciting in terms of the type of women we have. So we, we collected... Um, women for the database always oh, sounds terrible when you say you're collecting yeah. women <laughs> you know we invited and identified women to come into the database from about the end of April we actually only opened it up at the beginning of July to event organizers to use but we've been helping behind the scenes with ideas so we think we've placed around 10 women at different events going forward so that's great since yeah. July yeah I know so I think yeah at time of recording we're in sort of the last the last second half of August so yeah. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Yeah, so we shut down for the summer in that mm-hmm. sense. You know, the world shut down for the summer, or certainly the industry did. So we're, they're back up and running. There's a lot of, seems to be a lot of activity with the database at the moment as event organisers put forward their, um, you know, for their winter programmes almost, you know, the, the events coming up in October, November, December. So, yeah, we've been really excited. And I think um, it's exciting to suggest women, as I mentioned earlier, who might not be on their radar. I mean, for example... I know that we have a woman in the database whose expertise is around senior living and resi- and retirement homes. And I know that's something that the, the investment side of the industry is always talking about. But they I don't are. think those two have ever connected no, in terms of right. talking. So I'm excited about um, how we, you know, how we're going to sort of get more kind of collaboration or cross crossover of ideas within events. We have, um, I'm trying to think what else we've place women at different events already yes yeah, so biz now we've a few women that we've suggested for those those worked out um we've done some work for i think the rics coming forward so we have about i think 40 industry partners so if you look on our website there are uh, logos of event organizers who have agreed to use the database they think it's a good idea which also helps us show women that we're you know we have the right organizations right. using the right it connections. yeah the right yeah. connections so if they're asked then you know it's going to work out Mm. And you said an interesting point before, which mm. is you were wondering how many women would want to put themselves out there. And Victoria and I were just talking earlier about the statistics of uh, fear and how public speaking is one of the most uh, feared activities, even above death. Uh, people just yeah. really do not want to put themselves out there. And I know just from my own experience up until uh, October 2000, and, uh, I think it was about 15... Uh, I could not speak in a crowded room. I couldn't even answer a question or ask a question. I was just so petrified of public speaking. And it wasn't until an opportunity came up that I grabbed and I did it with after a lot of self-talk that I got myself up there. I was a sweating, shaking mess. But at the end of it, I felt so empowered and I, I felt like I'd achieved one of my big life achievements that I'd got up in front of a room of 60 women who were very supportive and and spoke and so I think that perhaps tell me from your experience do you find that women are perhaps less likely to get themselves up there are they more fearful of that Um, what is it that you've found I think there's a confidence gap I mean look at yourself you're successful you're knowledgeable you know you're confident you know the the idea that you wouldn't do public speaking is crazy you know a year or so ago so I think you know sometimes it's about uh, there is sort of a confidence gap and certainly with things like uh, the panel discussions, the open-ended nature of those events, the fact that you go up onto stage and the, it's sort of semi-unstructured, even though there's been some prep, you don't know what you're going to be asked. Women like to be more prepared. So yes, they, in a way, they would rather, 
you know, spend a week preparing for a keynote discussion, a key, sort of keynote speech that they could be in control of. So it's also about sort of breaking down some of the, the, the types of the formats that the industry have. So we put training in place to sort of bridge that confidence gap. Like we do panel discussion training because we, oh, we think there's okay. tips and techniques. You know, yes. there's kind of there's a psychology of how these things work. And as long as you, if you take the mystery away from it, it's essentially a conversation on stage, mm. you know, but there's, you know, it helps if you look engaged. You see so many panelists who look bored. Yeah, yeah that's right. They're reclining back, back yeah. and not even engaging. Yeah. You know, and women are more like you know, women will take time to prepare, so they will be on message and they will give a good view, and they can be better panelists. They can be really good panelists. Yeah, so. c- concise and succinct and mm. and on topic rather than just waffling. And and I think that's one of the tips that I would find for panelists, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it as well on the panels I've been on, is not being really consistent and concise and just because you can give a five-minute answer doesn't mean that that's always best. Yeah. It, it's about answering the question that's been raised and adding a little colour and interest and facts or stats to that. But it's, yeah, not waffling. <laughs> exactly. We talk about trying to, you know, try and talk about not just the figures, not why it's the highest rent or the lowest wheel, but what does that mean? So getting women, you know, getting kind of people on panels to translate that and make that more story-like and more interesting. You know, people are going there to be educated. You need to trust in yourself that you're an expert and that they're, you know, that what you're saying is not going to be outrageous. You know, that what you're saying is going to be well thought through, considered and, you know, articulate. And I think once women have done it, they're like you. They bounce off stage going, I love that. I'm yeah, going to do bring more it of on. that. Yeah, bring it <laughs> on. Yeah. yeah. And what advice do you have for women who are feeling uh, uh, timid and apprehensive about it? Uh, obviously, the self-talk worked for me mm-hmm. and just getting out there and do it, doing it. But... You need some tools. So what advice do you have for women who are thinking about doing more speaking? And and how do they even start, actually? What would be some... Give them some direction. How would you suggest that they even start speaking if, if they've not done it before? Um, I think you'll find most companies these days want people to speak internally. So, I mean, put yourself up for opportunities internally. Lots of companies have education programs where they want to, you know, other... To, you know, if you're in a big company... you. they don't necessarily know what you do so can I put yourself forward for those sort of speaking um, engagements I think you know come and come and do the training because I think you realize sometimes it's just the push and you have to be in the database to be asked and the thing about visibility in women is that you know some of them who are thinking I'm not sure if I want to speak are therefore keeping quiet about the you know the possibility of being asked so I think it's being open to it we had some really good advice early on from someone who someone had told them to Say yes to the opportunity and think about how you're going to execute it later. And that sounds like what you did with that uh, early speech. You had to talk yourself into it. But, you know, as soon as you can kind of be prepared, then I think, you know, I think you're halfway there. Don't over prepare, I think. Yeah, but it's around preparation and knowing your topic. Mm -hmm. And I I think with actors, they do so much improv training, how they're they're, they're taught to say, right, here's a pen. Talk to me. Sell me this pen. And, and they, they're taught how to do that. Whereas I know that I couldn't get up on stage and talk about something that I didn't feel that I, I knew 100%. And perhaps we're shortchanging ourselves because there is nothing wrong with getting up on stage or being on a panel and mm. being asked a question saying, well, actually, I don't know too much about that. However, this is what I do know related to that. And perhaps as women, we are a little apprehensive about doing that. Yeah, we're we're very we're very keen to sort of undermine our own expertise sometimes. I definitely wouldn't if you don't know the topic, don't accept the speaking engagement. But if you know the topic, then yeah. 
you know, be confident in yourself because you know you've sat around a boardroom talking about it. You know that you've talked to your clients about it. So why would you suddenly lose all that knowledge if you just sat on stage and talk about it? I think people also fear that they will say something wrong. So um, I always joke that Victoria and I, the range of things that we talk about when we're out of work, you know, is just exponential. But, you know, as soon as people get on stage, that just narrows down and people start being really kind of... um, narrow and quiet and unconfident about what their own views you've got to get people to realize that as long as you're not going to say something bad about your own company and your clients then it's your opinion you can also couch your opinions I think a lot of what we hear in panel discussions is consensus and people agreeing with people you can say well actually you know we've all sat here and we all want to do a great job but what we've not talked about is the fact that no one can afford to do this or Mm. you know there's a big elephant in the room about you know regulation that's stopping us doing this so you can also bring up other topics and sort of help make the make the the conversation more engaging and that comes with the confidence and with a a knowledge of your topic and Mm. as you said you don't accept don't accept gigs that uh, you don't know anything about but it's those curveballs that you might be thrown that you have to have the confidence to answer around those and but also I I would I would say that there's nothing wrong with saying I can't answer that question I totally agree yeah I think you can just say on stage and say I don't know anything you know I know that's not that's not my topic for me so I can come back to you I've probably got a colleague who can answer that question if you're interested in it but also if you've gone on the preparation call for a for a panel discussion then you can also say at that time to the moderator, don't ask me about X or Y because it's not my area. So, I mean, a lot of, I've done a lot of events and a lot of people miss those preparation calls. And it's really important because you then know the scope of the, um, of the conversation. And you also know, you can also say, oh, I know a lot about X. So you'll be asked on your best topics rather than get a curveball about something you don't know about. But yeah, I think it's the old media training rule. Never try to go down a conversation where you, you know, trying to sort of bluster the answer because if you don't know, just say it's not something I know about. Mm. I think that's that media training that I did in a very early banking role that put me off public speaking for life because they had this uh, hard-nosed journalist come in and interview us all and completely have us running around after ourselves and tying ourselves up in 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 knots, mm. and that put me off completely. But when when you're invited to speak at a conference or an event, they want you to look good. And I think you have to remember that. It's not as if you're going on the news and being interviewed or you're a politician where they want to trip you up. When you're being invited to speak, it doesn't look good on the organisers if you don't look good. This is not Radio 4. This is not the no. Today programme. <laughs> no, you don't have to wake up to, to that kind of haranguing. No. Um, and you're right. And the audience is also on your side. They I are. think that's something yeah. to remember, you know. Our speakers are from across Europe and, and some people are going up there and speaking in a second language. And that's also really difficult. But everyone is on their side. Mm. You know, you know, like you said, it's you know, one of the greatest fears. So most people in the audience are just relieved that they're not on stage. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you can go up with some confidence that, you know, that everyone's you know, not wanting you to fail. And, and as, when we talk about the um, when we do the panel discussion training, that um, we often talk about some of the things that have gone wrong just to show that, you know, I, you know, you survived. Yeah. I have one of those moments in front of 300 people where I completely lost my train of thought, you know, when yeah. just something just falls <laughs> off a cliff in your head. And I just had to admit, I've completely forgotten, you know, completely forgotten That's what right. I was going to say. Come back to me. I'll think about it. You know, and everyone's laughing. But you think, oh, you know, I've had, yeah. this, you know, stage fall down behind me a former colleague turned the lights off in the middle of my speech so that <laughs> I was in darkness so yeah I mean 
it's you know that doesn't sound like a way to encourage people onto stage yeah. but you know you survive it's quite funny it makes you memorable that's right <laughs> you know yeah, don't the girl panic. who fell off the stage or yeah. the one who fell over her heels <laughs> yeah exactly and I, I suppose the notion of time on stage everything feels so drawn out like if you take a drink of water or something that feels like that took a minute or if you if you're thinking of an answer, time feels like it just stretches. It doesn't. You know, if you can just be confident that if someone's watching it from the, from the audience, it's perfectly normal behaviour. And mm. I quite like it, actually, when the panellist looks like they're giving a considered response and actually takes some sort of dramatic pause. It, it adds, to the, adds to that. And I guess with your training on the panels, uh, you can teach people how to feel comfortable and, and look comf- confident while they're doing that. What other training do you offer? We're also um, working to doing a, a moderating training as well. So we want, you know, we know that event organisers like to have um, professionals from the industry moderate their events sometimes. So we want to make sure that we have a whole army of women that enjoy doing that. Um, and then we're going to include in that sort of moderating panel discussions as well, because that also is an art. You know, the moderator really is the key to a successful or a failed um, panel discussion you know, just their levels of energy, whether they're doing that whole thing of asking the same question to each panellist. So that by the time you're the fourth person to ask the same question, the, you've lost the audience yeah. already. So, you know, we, we want to try and teach panellists and moderators to have that more newsy style of let's just have a conversation here and let's butt in between, you know, butt into people's conversations and make, make con- contradictory points and things like that. So, and um, we also, I think further down the line, we'll also try and, you know, support women who have been asked for, you know, keynote presentations, do a little bit more around the content of pre- of um, um, speeches that are being delivered. I'm a big fan of the whole notion of storytelling in, yes, definitely. in, in so presentations. We, yeah. yeah. You know, we forget, you know, we forget that everything we do in life is a story. You know, as soon as you come out of a boring meeting, you go and tell someone the story of the boring yeah. meeting. So. Why is it that when we get on stage, we feel like we have to have a linear approach and first tell about the company's 200 year history before getting on to the subject of hand? You know, and you've just, you know, you lose, if you lose people in that first five minutes, you know, the next time they perk up is when you say, and in conclusion, then yeah, they're back right. with yeah, you. Great. Yeah, great. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, so I think it's, it's also about trying to, and that's a more natural way of telling a story in a more, you know, and more engaging way, but an easier way for you to remember stories as well, remember your content. That's right, because no one can argue with your story because yeah. it's your story. And that's that was the advice that I was given as well, is if you can put as much of your own colour and story into it, then that mm. can't be disputed. That is yours. Yeah, I always used to show a picture of um, school kids being read a story in um, in nursery school, you know, sat on the rug, kind of cross-legged, listening intently, and then showed a conference and said, well, what's the difference? The only thing is the kids like to have the same story every day. That's yeah. fine. You know, you're going to have to keep it newsy and you're going to have to... Um, you know, make it make sure you don't repeat yourself or say the same thing. Or, but you know, in general, people are just there to listen. And you know, we've been it, stories are so embedded in how we kind of learn that why would we, when these educational environments, why would we not use one of our most natural tools? That's right. And I think it's also about if someone is looking to become a speaker, it's important for them to find their own authentic voice and presentation style. And you gave an example of a keynote speaker saying the good mornings and in conclusion and being very formal. And some people do that very well. Mm. The And then there are the big speakers that you see, the Anthony Robbins, the people who get up and motivate people. And, and that's also a different style of speaking. And But the speakers that I always liked 
and I enjoy listening to are the ones that feel like they're having a conversation just with you. And even though they're addressing a couple hundred people in the room, they don't project their voice. They will speak in a, a conversational tone. I've always liked that. Do you think that there's a trend or do you towards that type? Or do you feel that it's just about finding an authentic voice that works for you? I think certainly among keynotes and conferences I've been involved in recently, there is a trend to have the person walking walking up and down the stage, looking down a bit, being much more natural because we're fed up with PowerPoint, death by PowerPoint. Oh, absolutely. You know, so we, we're just so relieved when you know <laughs> someone does not bring out a PowerPoint presentation. And that's a shame, actually, because uh, I think the thing about PowerPoint is that people think that they, um, you know, that they should have all their notes on it. And it's meant, you know, it's meant to come with a presenter. You know, it's meant to be sort of a support. So I think people are moving away from that. And there's much more, much more training around storytelling and around making sure that you don't rely on reading slides out on stage. And I think another thing that I remember from actually when I was trained about presentations is, you know, go on stage and be yourself. Don't be your job title. You know, if I was I was thinking of director of research, research at the time, don't go and be the director of research because that's a boring thing. You know, be yourself. You you know, your job is, you know, you are you are the role. The role isn't you. That's so, so true. It's yeah. kind of, you know, so some people felt that they had to be more upright and more serious because they were the director of research. research. I don't say research, something. Mm. Research. So, you know, if you if you go up there and be yourself, people again respond to you much better rather than, okay, here's the person who's got all the graphs showing GDP and things like that. Yeah, yeah no, that's really... So you are... Say that again. You are your job. Your job is not you. Yeah. yeah. No, I really like that. It's just... If someone, I feel insulted if someone comes and reads out their PowerPoint because I think I can do that Mm. much quicker and I don't need you up there taking up my valuable time to read that out. So I'm sure when you do your training, is that something that you look at as well as how to use PowerPoint? Because as you said, it sometimes is essential. If you're giving facts and information, you need to have those statistics Mm. up there, but it is about how you use it well. Yeah, I think, you know, the the average is that you remember three things from a really things from a speech yeah <laughs> so in a way your best thing to walk up is walk up on stage and say well here's the powerpoint of the three things i want you to remember when you leave the room and then you know the rest of, you can sleep for the rest of the speech That's almost right. so yeah so you've got to be very careful about what you put you know what you put on those slides and people also use font size and pictures that they, you cannot see at the back of the room and again just you're losing people if you can use powerpoint well is to you know not have a slide that says Europe's GDP but has a slide that says you know you know France is France up this this month or something so again you automatically engage them with something on the slide rather than you know know, it's another opportunity for you to kind of get a fact out there. Mm. And just in conclusion I think what um, what was interesting that you raised right at the beginning is about inspiration and and creating women who inspire other women within the industry and do you do you feel that we do relate differently if if we are a woman listening to a woman speak uh, than if we were listening to a man speak? And and how important is it for this for women to have this inspirational aspirational uh, figure when they are attending these various conferences? And events? I think it's really important because I think you. As a young person coming into the industry, if you look on stage and it's all senior people and it's all men, you think there's nowhere for me to go in this industry. Yeah. There isn't a path for me. You've got to start to see those paths. And and I think one of the other great things about this this project that we're doing with Women Talk Real Estate is how 
brilliant that female network actually is. You know, this thing crackled across the industry when we launched it. You know, uh, people said, oh, I've heard about this. Some, you know, my, my female friend told me. So suddenly, you know, that that female network is rising up in a sense around this, which is fantastic. And we need good role models and we, we all need support. I think, you know, if you go, you know, have a, we have a great woman, Anne Kavanagh. She works for Patrizia at the moment. She's on our advisory board and she always goes along to events where she knows her female friends are speaking because she wants to support, support them. them. And yeah. that's fantastic. And we need to, be, you know, be really supportive of getting women on stage and making sure that if we there are women up there, that we stay for that panel discussion. We ask questions and we support them. Because I think the more women that we have who can be inspiring to us, you know, like Anne is for Victoria and I, the more we're driven on to 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 do better yeah, and you know and actually make you know be more high, high profile and be more ambitious for what we want to do mm. within in the industry. As you said, it just gives a direction and shows where they could head because no one wants to be in an industry where they feel they have no future, and that mm. just gives a future. So on the future. What is the future for Women Talk Real Estate? Are you going to tap into that network that you're building and perhaps have more events within the women that, you're, that you've got together now? Or um, what, what are your plans? Well, we want to make sure that we are um, broadly reflected across the industry. So we probably need to do more work on the continent because our base is more UK. So that's where it's grown from. So we're very keen for it to be European and again, across across the different sectors, we don't have any plans to do events. We just think that, you know, we can do more by kind of getting women involved in the events that are there at the moment. But we're we're there for any legitimate platform that wants to have female speakers. So if you are a client and looking at a client event and need some ideas, you know, come and come and speak to us. I think we also want to make sure, yeah, we're getting more role models and then we're getting I think we have a we have a number of senior women in this industry but we understand that that layer is thin in a sense so what we need to work on is making asking event organizers to think more about that next layer down which you know don't be so obsessed with having a female ceo sat with a male ceo you know a female director head of region or something is extremely you know well equipped to be speaking on the same topic so you know it's also about just trying to have those conversations to have um, to make sure more women out there and also, I think Women Talk Real Estate has become, for Victoria and I, something of a culture change. We want to make sure more women take um, that part of their career um, more seriously. The visibility and the high, high profile is not something that you do when you have time. You know, you need to build it into your day-to-day efforts. And, you know, women's worth like balance and, you know, how they do their job. You know, they we would ask that they, you know, that they do prioritise if they get a speaking opportunity to do it, because, you know, we want to make sure the only way we're going to get better representation is we all work together to do yeah, this. To we can't that. complain about representation if we're also not, not doing anything, not doing, the, yeah, <laughs> exactly. doing the work to improve it. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. I, look, I think it's brilliant and I'm really excited Thank to you. be involved and, and look forward to seeing how you're growing and how how can women who want to, who are currently speakers or who want to be speakers how can they get involved and be listed in your database so you can go to the website which is um, womentalkrealestate.org and there's a form there where you fill in um, to become a speaker we often we often get speakers through recommendations as well but we do welcome people kind of inviting at this early stage we are looking for women who have some speaking experience to sort of get the, the database established but we also really want to encourage our rising stars so for rising stars you know come on a training course find out about a bit more about what we do because as soon as we kind of meet you 
you know, we, we know more about you and want to put you in the database. And that's a great range, again, of, a great way, again, of just bringing that pipeline up, making sure that there's more women thinking about it at an earlier stage in their career. That's right. Making it a priority. Mm. Andrea, thank you so much for your time. It's thank been you. It's really interesting. That's been great. Thank you so much for having me.